0: In our culture, we learn through stories. But what if the stories we hear don't match the reality of life? What if the stories we hear every day that tell us how to write the narrative of our lives actually lead us to a false narrative? My name is Tim Kroll and on this podcast you will hear real stories. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Real people sharing the hard times, the bends in the roads along life's journey. If you're ready to join a community of other real people who are writing the narrative of their lives, then go to narrative.live and join the community. Now let's dive into today's show. Once again, here we are we
1: have got another incredible story. Robert and I met actually through networking groups. I love the fact that we've got networking groups because it kind of introduces us to new people but I don't know Robert's story so I am just as intrigued today to be able to hear about Robert's story as everybody else is that's listening. So let's go ahead and get started Robert, thank you for being here first of all. Second of all, let's ask so we met just met in the elevator. And I say, who are you? Give me kind of an introduction, like a 30 second, not necessarily what you do, but who are you? What do you like about the identity that you've created? Who are you?
2: (laughs) Well, first off, call me Bob. I was born and raised in the Chicago area, ended up going to uh, college and medical school in Colorado, and then did a pediatric medical genetics training program. So those have sort of defined my third decade of life and on. I'm now clinically retired, but still very active in terms of trying to be an author for what I can do to advocate for children and working at a local children's home to help be a consultant there for some of the work that they're doing.
1: Awesome. Awesome stuff. So, well, that's great. I mean, like that just kind of defines exactly where we're at. So let's go ahead and jump into the first phase of this and looking at it from the perspective of what defined you right before you stepped into adulthood what were the beliefs what was the story that you were looking to live and to fulfill right before you actually decided like hey i am now an adult whatever age that is but what, what was it like you know kind of growing up
2: well i think there's several defining moments along the way i mean obviously i lived in in retrospect a fairly privileged life a middle class upper middle class family of some means i'm not sure i knew that at the time but it was just the life i lived my parents divorced when i was 9 My father had a significant problem with alcoholism and was a smoker. And I think I was sheltered from most of that physical and verbal abuse that my mother suffered. I think my brother saw that more. And because of that, I sort of Glommed on more to my mother because my father was sort of out of my life, and some of the experiences with my father were not so pleasant as they occurred. So it became sort of a difficult life because my mother had no emotional support from her family. Divorce in 1959 was something you don't do, and she didn't have any support for making that transition. We tried to stay in that environment in the Chicago area, and then we moved away. That didn't work after a year. And during that year away in Colorado, is when I sort of had a mini psychological crisis, if you will. I was a young gangly kid, seventh grader carrying a briefcase. I mean, oh my God, I can't believe I still did that. And so I was the victim of bullying and it made it very difficult. Now with the, my being away from where I grew up, being in a new environment, being bullied, I actually was hospitalized for a brief period of time just because of stomach ailments. In retrospect, I know it wasn't stomach ailments now. Fortunately, was met a psychologist who spent a lot of time with me and helped me, even at that young and tender age, helped me come aware of sort of where I was and where I needed to go in terms of thinking through some things. So that psychology at age 12 is a tremendous tool for me. Uh,
1: So so let me, can can I back you up a little bit? Because this is really, I think there's a lot of individuals, maybe they didn't have a briefcase, but they didn't fit in. And I'll just kind of put it at that part of it. They didn't fit in with the regular rest of school. And so therefore the bullying came out. What did that do to establish a belief about who you were? Where did that place your values and how did that kind of play into? Because you were ripped out of a familiar scenario in Chicago and then placed all of a sudden in Colorado. And then all of a sudden things were just not the way you thought they were going to be. So what did that do to you as far as like establishing values, establishing who you were, your identity? How did you kind of go through some of that process?
2: Well, at the time it didn't do any of that. I mean, even even in retrospect, after I had a, had the psychological counseling, I don't think I really knew my identity. I was more in an existence mode, and I was a good student, so that was sort of where I was at at that point. That was maybe it was maybe it was my academic success, and, and I was a fairly good high school trumpeter. So those two things let me sort of get through and do what I needed to do at the time, but I still sort of felt like I was adrift in terms of what, what I what I wanted to do because we moved back to the Chicago area and went to one school and then had to go to another school and then we moved away again. So I've never really developed roots where I would have liked to going forward. But it was probably my academic success and my trumpeting that got me to high school and through high school was saying, okay, this is something I can do now. I really didn't know what I wanted to do after that other than I thought I wanted to be a, a clinical psychologist. Obviously, the role model from seventh grade of seeing that psychologist and feeling, I won't say cured, but feeling supported and able to move on in my life was a tremendous impact to me going forward. My mother was also one of these people that was just very supportive and was always there to do what needed to be done for me. Were you the youngest or were you the oldest? I was the youngest. And in many ways, I suspect I was the favored one. Because my brother was sort of, was hitting his adolescent years. And so I was the one that was still being more nurtured. (laughs) I gotcha. I gotcha. So
1: it was the seventh grade, especially that encounter that you had with the psychologist. What did that change in you? Did it create a value? Did it create, like, again, I, I know we kind of mentioned a little bit about the identity, but how'd that impact you?
2: Well, I mean, it really, it awakened a tremendous impact in terms of trying to understand psychology, trying to understand how the mind works, how people get supported. At the same time, and I probably didn't know it as much, my mother was under psychiatric care. So psychology and psychiatry was sort of accepted and talked about out loud in our family. So if there were problems, it was okay. It wasn't something that was shoved to the back. We were very open about things as I got older. That's so different than
1: most of the families in, I'll just use the United States or kind of in this United States era is, I mean, we're taught to hide our feelings. We're taught to hide some of those questions and the doubts and concerns that we have because it's just not really acceptable. You're saying you didn't really necessarily grow up with that belief. You actually had the ability to be able to share like, hey, this is what's going on. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, in retrospect, I'm not even sure I knew that until now. In retrospect, I think that's very accurate because that's sort of the that nurturing environment that my mother set up, understanding what wasn't what she didn't have. And now being a single parent, the guilt that went along with that, I think she in many ways was maybe overboard. She wasn't a helicopter parent, but she was very supportive of me in anything I did.
1: Yeah. And that's a huge benefit, especially stepping into life, just realizing that it's okay to have feelings. (laughs) Like So many of us struggle with the aspect, like I got these feelings and I can't even deal with them. But it's actually, that's really interesting that you were able to have that as such a powerful upbringing and something that actually like gave into your life or, or spoke into your life in that manner. So what was the, if you can kind of conclude it, like what was the belief of how life was going to work right before you stepped into adult life? How were you going to live your life?
2: Well, I was going to be a clinical psychologist. I was going to get a PhD and then go from there. So I was going to go off to college, get a graduate degree, then go on to the great beyond and figure out how to put all that together into, into society.
1: Got it. All right. So then looking at part of these things, and again, we're kind of shifting into now, what were the challenges that you stepped into as you kind of stepped out on your own and became your own individual? What were the bends in the road or the major bend in the road? What was the situation that kind of had you shift in your own life perspective and in your, the way that you perceive the
2: world? Probably several things right there around the, the end of the second decade, beginning of the third decade, obviously between 18 and 22. I married at age 20. That subsequently ended up in divorce 16 years later. But in many ways, that was an eye-opener in terms of the responsibilities of being an adult. In many ways, it was isolating in terms of the ability to get out and enjoy some of those youthful adult experiences that some folks do. My first wife and I became foster parents for children that had disabilities. We did that for about 12, 18 months. That taught me Wow, what do what parents go through? How do they, the difficulty, of one, being a parent, and then two, raising a child that had significant disabilities. The first child we had we had hearing impairment, visual impairment, and heart disease, and at age nine, was still not going to the bathroom on the toilet. So we learned some significant lessons about ourselves and about others. After a period of time, we realized that we could not continue to carry that burden. We wanted to, but... There were other things in our lives that we needed to take care of. I didn't decide to go to medical school until I was a junior in college. Again, psychology was where it was at, and I was a psychology major. But all of a sudden, science clicked, and I wanted to expand my horizons beyond just psychology. And like so many people that go to medical school, you know, we say, I wanted to help people. And I felt that, for me, that path was was going into medicine. So- why? What what
1: made you make that decision to go from what you had planned on doing, which was a psychology field, to all of a sudden start to shift? Was there something that generated life study?
2: Like I'm not sure what to ask here, other than how did that transition happen? Well, it was basically two things. I mean, one was the excitement of the greater breadth of science, biology and chemistry, and the things that go into medicine. And then the other thing, to be honest, was this was in the middle of the call up for the Vietnam War. I had a very low draft number, or lottery number in the draft, and I was much more likely to get a deferment going into medical school than to going into graduate school. Now, that's not a good reason per se, but it's part of what my youthful thinking was. The Vietnam War was something I was vehemently opposed to at the time, but just going into medical school is not just something you can do on a whim, so obviously I have the wherewithal and the commitment to do that. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny how looking back on some of our lives, situations and decisions that we made that we didn't know were going to have such a deep impact for the rest of our lives and the rest of our journey. You know, like you said, it's kind of like, okay, we have certain ways that kind of push us in directions, but we don't always know why they're pushing us in that direction. Is that how you were feeling? Is that kind of the thoughts or?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just, I knew I wanted to go into medical school, but then once I got into medical school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to do everything that I was doing in medical school, you know. Well, a couple of things I didn't want to be OBGYN, but I wanted to be radiologist, I wanted to be a dermatologist, I wanted to be internal medicine, I wanted to be pediatrics, I wanted to do now. Well, didn't want to do surgery, but I wanted to do a lot of the different things I was exposed to.
1: So what what made you finally choose and, and settle in the field that
2: you're in? Well, several things. I mean, I, one, the experience of being a foster parent and seeing what the trials and tribulations of families and understanding that on a personal level, what families go through. Two, after being on the various rotations in medical school, I felt like I could make a more significant impact in pediatrics. That's what I wanted to go into. I don't think I understood the breadth of the experience at the time, but I have just felt like it was... There was two things. Obviously, there's the humanity of of helping parents become better parents. Then there's two in terms of taking care of severe illness when that arises also. So you're doing both of those. And in medical school, you sort of think of yourself as a scientist. And then later in medical school and certainly in residency, you learn you're becoming a scientist slash humanitarian. And if you're not doing both of those, you're not doing a good job.
1: Yeah. So and I know there's obviously client privilege and PD. Pedi- like, and so I'm not trying to I get you to breach any of that, but can you tell me like the most impactful situation or story of how you really feel like you've left the change or what from, okay, here, here's where I'm going with this. One is I know from personal experience when a family member is ill, it impacts a family on such a deep level. And oftentimes we get situations where doctors are a little bit cold hearted and a little bit, you know, not very empathetic to have that from your side to be able to hear like okay these are the things that especially as families are going through some of these challenges cuz you experienced it with the fostering and you you know you then that inspired you to be able to go into some of the pediatric work to be able to help so what is it that you are able to accomplish what do you cuz you said it's science and humanity combined together and too often we forget that there's science and humanity that have to go into medicine so can you speak a little bit about that maybe just
2: share whether it's a philosophy, a story, like I, I know that you have to be careful, but. Let, let me give you three quick little vignettes. Number one, and this is not a specific patient care. I was a first year resident. It was three o'clock in the morning, which meant I was working up patients who were being admitted. I was working up my first patient. My senior resident came up and said, I just got back from the emergency room. And by the way, I just took care of your fourth admission. So here I was on my first admission, recognizing that I had three more to go. I just broke down in tears. I mean, I just couldn't take this anymore. I was I was out of gas. I was able to take that deep breath and get the compassion of those around me and say, it's okay, Bob, we're here with you. We'll get you through this. And then I was able to take that step back and remember it wasn't about me. It was about them, the people I was taking care of. That was a very enlightening experience. Number two was one of the more poignant experiences I had. I was a senior resident, and one night a child was admitted with childhood leukemia. We stayed up with that child all night long, and the child died during the night. And I was at the bedside when the child died. Very difficult situation, because back then most childhood leukemia children did not survive. Fortunately, now that's flipped. 24 hours later, I was at my bedside delivery of my oldest son. So here I was, Death, birth, parenthood. I mean, the gamut of emotions. And when I was able to take the step back and see what everything that was going on there, that I could have share the joy of what I had, but I can understand the sorrow that other people had, and I can understand the impact that it had on their lives. Because admittedly, by, by the time my young oldest son was now born, I was totally pooped because I'd been up the night before for 24 hours. So that was very enlightening. Example number three was after I was in practice for a while. Actually, probably my first year. I started practice in 1979. And by the way, I also got medical genetics training in there also. One of my first patients, my partner diagnosed at three months of age, a kidney tumor. We sent the child off to a specialty hospital. They took the kidney out with the tumor and everything was fine. But we followed the child closely. About two or three years later, tumor arose in the other kidney, and they were going to try to decide how they could try to save the kidney, to get the tumor out, and so they did various things: chemotherapy, radiation therapy. The tumor shrunk. They tried to save the kidney, but they couldn't. Child went on dialysis. The child was subsequently diagnosed because was not recovering well, was cystic fibrosis. So here's a child that was on, had bilateral, both sides ended up kidney tumors artificial kidneys and cystic fibrosis now she subsequently had a kidney transplant but she ended up dying at age 16 the whole point of that story is that that little girl and that family taught me so much they felt that I taught them that I cared for them but they don't realize how much I took away from that in terms of trying to being a better person and a better citizen and helping others so much more than I was at the time. Hmm.
1: This interview, I mean, what we're talking about is actually going in a a different direction, but I love the direction. So I have some questions. One, how did you survive emotionally through all of this? Because you just spoke about the gamut of emotions from the compassion to the joy of life to the the pain of seeing somebody pass to having a a 16-year-old that passed that taught you more about who you could become and the strength. How do you survive on an emotional level? And then another question that I have is, how do you help those that are going through it? How do you help them to have and find courage and
2: find hope when the world seems dark? I think it was that nurturing from my mother, from the psychologist, in that second decade of life that I was going through my adolescence that gave me that strength. Because I'm not sure that I had, there was a specific beacon in my 20s as I was going through my pediatric training that said this is going to get you through that when I was totally exhausted how was i going to still realize that i still had to subjugate some of my feelings to what i could do to help people i don't know that there was a specific beacon but other than it was there was something inside me that kept me going and kept me strong i did not get While I might have gotten discouraged, I never got to the point of despondency or or depression and was very fortunate with that.
1: Yeah. So are there activities that you do on a daily basis to help with that? I mean, I know that the core, the belief that you had instilled in you as a child of the strength of, of individuality you know, whether it was through your mother and the nurturing aspect and through the psychologist. And I think there was probably a really strong core there that they established, but is there things that you do on a daily basis to keep that strength alive?
2: I wake up very eager to to do my work and to see people. Yeah.
1: All right. So then the other question is, and, and I think this can go in a couple of ways. One is how do you find ways to be empathetic and to be helpful when those people are in those situations. And I think you're going to have more extreme situations than the average American, just because of the way that your life is. But what would you tell us as individuals, if we have a friend that's going through something like this, how can we be helpful? And how can we, so like I said, there's two ways. One is you. And then the second way is how do we work as as people to be empathetic?
2: Okay. 14 years into my pediatric practice in in my medical genetics training. A brief aside, I went into medical genetics also because I really, really enjoyed the science. And I wanted to be able to, medical genetics in the late 1970s was just an exploding field. And I wanted to be able to bring that to the care of pediatrics. And obviously my care of foster children with disabilities put that together. But 14 years into my practice, I felt like I wasn't paying back to the community like I should. I was thriving, I was a busy physician, working as hard as I could. And I went and heard a talk from somebody that talked about how people need to pay back to their communities. And he said 12 words that had a profound impact on me. I am the problem, I am the solution, I am the resource. So for anything happening in the community, I have to personalize that. I have to recognize I am the problem. I have to be part of the solution, And to do that, I needed to devote my resources to that. So that was 1993 for me, 30 years ago. And that was, it took me a while to internalize that message. You know, what does that mean, Bob? What are you going to do? So I went to the folks in the community and said, you know, put me in, coach. I'm ready to do whatever you need to do. And I felt like I was, you know, I felt like I was smugly really good. And then April 20, 1999, two students walk into a high school in Littleton, Colorado, massacre 13 people and kill themselves. You and I know that as Columbine. And that had a profound impact on me. Could it happen in where I live? Yes. And what have I done to make a difference? Not enough. So I started writing, and I'm getting to your point about how do I learn about empathy, because that was sort of the kickoff for me. Because at that point, I sat down and wrote, okay, what can I do to help others improve our community? And I wrote down five steps to community improvement. And over the next 12, 13 years, I wrote over 160 op-ed articles for the local newspaper about what each of us could do to improve our community. And initially, when I started writing those, I would let my wife read them. And she would go, oh, I don't know about this one. That, that, <laughs> that sounds a little preachy. And I said, well, you don't understand who I'm preaching to. And she said, what do you mean? I said, I'm preaching to myself. And if somebody else gets a message from it, great. But this is to myself, to how I can be a better person and more engaged citizen. So those five steps, learn to be the best parent you could be. And I chose those words carefully because parenting is lifelong learning and not everyone has the same circumstances. Not everyone has the same socioeconomic circumstances, educational circumstances, health circumstances. So it's learning to be the best parent you can be. And initially, after I got out of training, as a young doctor, parents would come in and say, you know, tell me what to do here, doc. And of course, I was smart. I knew what to do. I I was, you know, I'd read books and it took me 40 years to realize what I needed to do was to help them gently peer behind the curtain, see what was happening, and to help empower them to be the best parent they could be, not to tell them. Step number two is get involved. Step number three, stay involved, which I think is very different than getting involved. Step number four is the most intuitive but seemingly difficult in our divisive society, love for others. And step number five, I think, is the most difficult, practicing forgiveness, accepting forgiveness, and extending forgiveness. So again, I wrote about those five steps, published those into a book in 2013, and have been since then writing articles, writing blog, writing other books, trying to get the message out because I want to be the best darn advocate for children, parents, and communities I can be. So what's the title of the book? We'll put that in the notes as well, but let's at least get the title on. Well, the first book was called My Children's Children, Raising Young Citizens in the Age of Columbine. The most recent book is called Conscious Parenting, Using the Parental Awareness Threshold, because I think I've evolved in terms of how to get the message out. The book about raising young citizens in the age of Columbine, in some ways, I was not meant to be abstract because it was meant to have, these are specific action steps you can take. 60 chapters, do this, and it'll help make a difference. But still, parents need help. They need a guide. And that's where the the last book came in. Yeah. That's incredible. Incredible. So, all right, man, I have so
1: many more questions too. And I'm just like, these are really cool. I love the five steps. I love what you've done there and then being able to survive and look at that. And I know that you're implementing these things and we've talked a lot about just how you're living out your life and crafting your narrative and what is your purpose. Let's do this. Let's ask this question. And then maybe we can, we'll we'll kind of end close to this. What is something, I know the five steps, but if you only had a couple of seconds, what is something that you could tell another individual this is the most important thing in life or this is what I would hope you would gather out of a conversation with Bob now, obviously I'm using you know but this is what I hope you would gather a conversation
2: out of uh, out of what we've we've talked about what is that thing that you hope somebody walks away with I am the problem I am the solution I am the resource change the pronoun we are the problem we are the solution we are the resource and then number two I'm adding a second in here quickly forgiveness forgiveness is crucial without being able to forgive yourself, forgive others, and extend forgiveness, life comes to a grinding halt. Mm.
1: And I can speak from experience. That is probably my biggest challenge, is that forgiveness aspect. So I'm thankful you brought that up because that's something that I truly have struggled with for I would say years, <laughs> literally with years. And I'm sure that others have as well.
2: This has been a journey for me. I mean, as I started writing the articles in 1993, you know, I've read so many books and so many things about forgiveness. And I've, and I've learned that forgiveness is a evolve. I mean, you know, when your four-year-old whacks your two-year-old and you tell the four-year-old, tell him you're sorry. And he goes, I'm sorry. You know, that's very different than 1434 34. 44, 64. I mean, so we have to be evolving in this forgiveness journey. Otherwise we're stuck. Yeah.
1: And I think we could probably do a whole episode just on that, but oh
2: my goodness, there's so many really
1: great things here. Is there anything else that you want to add that you feel like is on your heart? Like, Hey, I need to share this.
2: Is there anything else along those lines? Well the other thing I'm really excited with in at this stage in my life is as I said I'm working with a local children's home where children that in families in crisis mode children come to be, get residential care and I'm working to help them establish a healing center how we can take the children that have suffered trauma help them become restored establish resiliency and flourish going forward so that's sort of my career work now because we, I wrote another book that was helping with that. And I'm really excited to be a part of that now. Oh,
1: that's fun. Fun stuff. All right. So if somebody resonates with you, how they really want to hear more, how can they get in contact with you? Of course, we're going to have the book in the notes. We'll have some other.
2: But how, how, how do they reach out to you? Probably the easiest is to go to my website, which is mychildrenschildren.com. And there's a contact page there. Perfect. Perfect. We'll definitely get that in the notes. So that way people can, if, you, if you're just listening, it's say it again.
1: It, it may be, we maybe need to spell it out just because if somebody's listening, they, they might need to be able to spell it out.
2: It's my children's children, no punctuation altogether, dot com. M-Y-C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N-S-C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N.
1: Perfect. Because <laughs> sometimes it's just getting that spelling and you're just like, well, is it, is, is the S in there? Is it not in there? It's a like, perfect, perfect. So we'll definitely get that Bob. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, truly this has been enlightening in regards to just how we approach our lives, how we approach the compassion aspect, the emotional. Oh my goodness. There's just so many really cool things in there. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. And, again, folks, if you're listening, Go back and listen to some of the other ones because not only has Bob shared this great, incredible insight, but we get these stories all the time. And share those stories out. The ones that are touching your life, the ones that you feel that you resonate with, the ones that you feel have really had an impact, not only reach out to me, but especially the reason why Bob's here is to be able to help out. And so reach out to him. If something is said, reach out and say, hey, this really impacted me because we love hearing those stories. It really honestly makes the world go round for us. So don't hesitate to reach out to us and just share what your experience has been. As always, make sure you subscribe, make sure you listen to the other stuff, continue to write your story, continue to craft the narrative that is for your life. And so until next time, enjoy and stay safe.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. But before you go, let me ask you a question. How would you like to be the author of your story? Take the next step now at www.narrative.live and enter your details to connect with a community of others just like you that are tired of living under the false narrative. Finding your true story and writing your narrative, it will give you clarity, freedom of your day, and it just might change your life forever.